From Odyssey, I'm Lauren Berry, and this is the On Deadline podcast, where we go deeper into the headlines you've heard from our radio newsrooms across the country. On Deadline today is a wild and wacky day in court for former President Donald Trump, plus his growing support for a second term, even as legal challenges to his candidacy emerge. First up is his testimony, which the New York Times called, quote, both ranting and rambling. The Times reported that Trump said he was more of an expert than anyone on real estate and acknowledged helping assemble documents stating the value of his properties, something his lawyers presumably didn't want him to admit. Trump faces more than 90 criminal charges across four separate cases at both the state and federal level. For those keeping score, the case he took the stand on this week was his New York fraud trial where the state is accusing him of lying about the value of his property to secure loans. The former president testified for more than an hour, answering questions from New York Attorney General Letitia James. The judge tried at various points to rein in Trump, who called James a political hack and tried to wax poetic about one of his golf courses, which he said was in the oil capital of Europe. Irrelevant, irrelevant, answer the question, the judge said, adding, this is not a political rally. Addressing one of Trump's lawyers, he said, I beseech you to control him if you can. If you can't, I will. CBS News legal analyst Thane Rosenbaum joined Odyssey in New York City to discuss Trump's testimony and his antics on the stand. What do you take this to mean, that the judge had to, in a sense, scold Trump and his attorney? They had to take a break, and then they came back in. Well, it's significant, but also predictable, right? If we're listening to this, we are being now told, look, when you're testifying in court, keep it measured, keep it unemotional, keep it short, right? Every lawyer will tell his client to do that, right? So everyone who's listening to you, your show now, that's just really basic stuff. Don't be over dramatic. Don't be over emotional. None of those things, Bridget, is in his wheelhouse. <laughs> he doesn't know how to do anything like that. So I'm sure that the judge said, before this gets turned into a circus, let me just tell you how these things roll. This is not a, a rally in Kansas or Kentucky or Maine. or It's not like that. This is my courtroom. I'm directing the show. I'm in charge. I want you to speak in short, clipped sentences, answer the questions directly, and let's get this thing moving. Right. And Thane, just to jump in, he had to have been coached on this, right? How to comport himself, uh, if not by a news director in broadcasting, uh, by, by an attorney. Yes. Yes. This is why he can't get attorneys. Two reasons. One, he never listens to them. And two, he doesn't, in the end, pay them. <laughs> he owes them all money. So this is the reason you know, people, he has a hard time getting lawyers. But the worst thing is, you know, he simply does not function on advice of counsel. And so, again, all of these things that he's done, even the press conferences outside, which I'm frankly not that opposed to because he is running for president and he should be able to speak to the public. And if he's being tied down in the courthouse, then maybe when he leaves the courthouse, he should be able to make some comments. Should he be disparaging everyone inside there? Should he be intimidating witnesses, contaminating the jury pool? No. But what the judge simply wanted to make sure is what you do outside is already a problem, but don't bring it inside. And that's what she was doing. That was what he was doing today. Mm-hmm. And uh, Thane, if you're Trump's, if you're on Trump's team, uh, it, there has to be the feeling that it's tough for prosecutors to prove that anybody was hurt in this. In other words, uh, and, and Trump has has spoken to this. Uh, you know, where are the banks? Uh, are they coming forward and saying, oh, you know, we lost money because we gave him better loans because we thought he was worth more than he actually was. 
it's even worse than that, Bridget. He's going to say, you're going to hear this all day. The documents themselves, Bridget, say, don't trust these documents. <laughs> There's disclaimers on them that literally say, get your own lawyer, get your own CPAs. Don't rely on mine. Mine are being done by outside counsel. I think they're as accurate as they can be, but don't rely exclusively on them. At that point, Trump's lawyers and the banks are going to say, well, we did, as a matter of fact. We sent our lawyers and we sent our bank, our accounts. We evaluated the documents. We loaned you the money. You did repay the loans. We made money on the deal. You made money on the deal. The attorney general for the New York State, James, it's sort of her job to deal with consumer welfare. In what way, even if they were inflated, right, the uh, real estate portfolio, in what way were the citizens of New York harmed? That's Trump's case right there. It says you, you have to show that I committed fraud that resulted in damages to the people of New York. Otherwise, why is the attorney general even involved here? Why are my kids involved here? And, you know, as you know, I think we've talked about this before. The reason he's in court is not just because, you know, he is theoretically he doesn't he not compelled to be there. He could choose not to. But in a civil case, unlike a criminal case, you a judge can draw a negative inference if you don't show up, if you don't want to mm. testify. Right. It's very important in in a criminal case, you simply don't have to testify and it doesn't supposed to harm you. Should be no prejudice. In civil court, if you don't testify, the judge or the jury can draw a negative inference. He's he's hiding something. But Bridget, you know, this is who he is, right? He sees himself as a New Yorker real estate tycoon. And this case essentially says you're a fraud. You're not really a tycoon. You cheated in your real estate portfolio. That's how you got your loans. That's how you got your insurance policies. You claim to be richer than you were, and I'm exposing you for that. So and that's why this is so personal. Even with Trump fighting legal fires around every corner, support for his 2024 candidacy just continues to grow. Most recently, polls in key battleground states won by Joe Biden in the last election have shown support swinging from Biden to Trump. The New York Times' latest poll shows that Trump is leading Biden in Nevada, Michigan, Georgia, Arizona, and Pennsylvania. Trump's smallest lead is 4%, and his largest is 11%. In the other swing state, Wisconsin, Biden has a lead, but it's only 2%. Political analyst Steve Roberts joined Odyssey to discuss the growing support for Trump. It's looking more and more likely that it's, it's going to be a Biden-Trump head-to-head -head matchup. Steve, some two very interesting polls are out today. An ABC News Ipsos poll finding 76% of Americans think the country's headed in the wrong direction. And a New York Times-Siena poll that shows former President Trump gaining support in battleground states, battleground states that Biden won in the last election. What's your takeaway from these polls? My takeaway is that these two numbers are connected, Susan, right? The reason, the single biggest reason why Trump is doing so well in those battleground states is the national mood. And it's a very sour mood, and it's been sour for a long time. And Joe Biden can go around the country as he has been and say, I've made all this investment in infrastructure, and there are going to be all these new jobs, and you should be happy. But they're not happy. And there are two reasons why they're not the voters are not happy. You start with the most obvious, and that's inflation. We've talked about this so often over the years, Susan. Inflation is the most powerful issue in politics. 
because it affects every family every single day. And Biden can buy $25 million worth of ads. He can go around the country and say things are great. But those families, when they got to spend $50 for groceries instead of 40, when they got to spend $70 to uh, fill up their pickup truck instead of 50, they know the difference. They feel the difference every day, every week. And that is contributing enormously to this negative mood. But the other factor that the polls really show is growing concern, even among Democrats, about Biden's age. He turns 81 in a few weeks, and the Democrats can say, well, Trump is almost as old. He's 77. That's true. But the fact is that Trump comes across as a much more energetic, vital figure than Joe Biden. And the gap between the two of them in terms of public perception is a lot bigger than three years. And so those are the two elements that are really pulling Biden down. Now, there are Democrats still have a lot of strengths in these uh, battleground states. And for all of his weaknesses, Joe Biden has done something that no other Democrat has ever done. He's actually beaten Donald Trump once. So uh, it's not all bad news for the Democrats, but these polls are, by and large, got to be a very, very large red flag for the Democrats a year out. And, you know, because it is looking like it's going to be Biden-Trump, it just brings the question up, is there a chance for a third-party candidate to come through here right now? Yes, there is. And uh, there are people nibbling around the edges. You have uh, other uh, people thinking about third parties. This group called No Labels has been organizing. Uh, And the polls show that there's more of an appetite for third parties than in the last election. And this, by and large, could be very damaging for Democrats. I've always believed that one of the single biggest differences between 2016 and 2020 was the third party vote. One of the reasons why Trump won, even though he got less than 47 percent of the popular vote, was that about 6 percent of Americans in 2016 voted for third parties. Many of them were Sanders supporters who were disillusioned, other Democrats who didn't like Hillary Clinton thought, well, I can afford the luxury of a third party vote because Trump's going to lose anyway. But in four years later, the percentage of the third party vote dropped from 6% to under 2%. And these elections, Susan, are decided by a handful of voters in a handful of states. And in every one of the key states that swung back from Trump to uh, Biden, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, the third party vote was critical. And it was the lack of a third party vote in 2020 that helped. It was critical in electing Biden. Now, you can argue that maybe some of the people voting third party are being taken away from Trump. You go back to, you know, the Bill Clinton election. Democrats uh, that year profited from Ross Perot taking votes away from Clinton's opponent. So it's not always that Democrats suffer from third parties because at times Republicans have too. But my bottom line here, Susan, is that if there is a significant third party vote, it could be very damaging to Biden. What do you make of RFK's candidacy? Well, I think that now it's largely a question of name recognition. You know, there are still people who love the name Kennedy, and and, and there's a hardcore of vaccine deniers, although they tend to be more Trumpian than, than Democrats. But the margins are so narrow. People don't realize this, Susan. A shift of 44,000 votes, a tiny fraction of 1% in three states, in the last election, would have thrown the election into the House of Representatives because it would have been a tie. Even when Donald Trump won, 
a shift of 80,000 votes to Hillary Clinton in the right places would have elected her. These are very, very, very narrowly contested elections. There are really only four basic swing states, Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, and Wisconsin. You can throw in Pennsylvania and Michigan. So if you, even if a third party tracks a sliver of votes, it could make the difference. But even with support for Trump growing, challenges are mounting for whether he can legally be on the ballot. Numerous state-level cases challenge Trump's eligibility based on the Insurrection Clause in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. That clause says that anyone who took an oath as an officer of the United States to support the Constitution, and who then engaged in insurrection or rebellion, or gave aid or comfort to the enemy, cannot hold office. Trump, of course, in one of his numerous legal battles, is charged with trying to overturn a democratically decided election. Odyssey in Detroit discussed efforts to keep him off the ballot in the key swing state of Michigan. But on what grounds do they believe President Trump should be barred from appearing on the ballot? Well, this is about a passage in the 14th Amendment, and the 14th Amendment was passed after the Civil War, essentially prohibiting people from voting or running for office who had engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States. The language is engaged in insurrection or rebellion. That's the language. So these lawsuits against Trump are in an attempt to use that language to disqualify him from running for public office. And the idea is that some courts in the United States have interpreted the January 6th attack on the Capitol as an insurrection in some of the cases involving people who were at that event and participated and committed violence or entered the Capitol. So then the question is, is what is Trump's engagement with that if, if it was in fact an insurrection? That was the voice of Ken Coleman, a professor of political science at the University of Michigan. In response to these lawsuits, former President Trump is suing the Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, hoping to block her from keeping him off the ballot in 2024, claiming the 14th Amendment doesn't apply to his situation. Now, Trump's people are arguing that it was a riot. It was not an insurrection. So that's an important terminology, as you can imagine, because it doesn't a riot isn't mentioned in the constitutional amendment, the 14th Amendment. But, you know, this is a, an ongoing legal battle in multiple states. Uh, certainly one is ongoing in Colorado, and now there's one in Michigan, and there are other states for which there are cases that are being brought and pending. Um, some have been dismissed in certain states. Michigan isn't the only state fielding lawsuits that are attempting to hold the former president off of their respective ballots. Colorado and Minnesota are also hearing cases. But according to Professor Coleman, these decisions will not be made lightly. The case of Michigan is actually very important because, of course, Michigan is one of the key states that's always up for grads in recent presidential elections. Trump is most at risk should he be the nominee if any such cases were to succeed in states for which he's the Republicans would be counting on electoral votes from that state. So let's say a quite red Republican state where he'd be left off the ballot, though then that would be a problem for obtaining those electoral votes in his quest to become president again. But there's also legal issues at stake. You can imagine judges taking cues from other states and other judges in making decisions along these lines. So one state makes a decision, it might affect what happens in other states. It's hard to say. This is going to go on for a while, and the stakes are are enormous.
The 2024 election is now just a year away, and concern still remains about who will be on the ballot next November, not only for Republicans, but also Democrats. Recently, President Biden has been criticized for continuing to push for a second term, despite his advanced age, so much so that a challenger has emerged from within his own party, Minnesota Representative Dean Phillips. Phillips has criticized Biden for his age, saying that he should step down and let a younger challenger be on the ballot. Biden will be 82 if he's reelected in 2024, and he'd be 86 by the end of the term. The president hasn't commented on challengers, but he's remained firm that he still intends to run. This show is produced by Joe Heady, Christy Strauser, Myron Kaplan, and Bill Smee. I'm Lauren Berry, and I want to say thanks for listening to On Deadline, Odyssey serving of a top news story just for you. Subscribe on the Odyssey app or wherever you find your podcasts to stay informed.